Uh, we're in Romans chapter 8. We're going to finish chapter 8. We're putting in at verse 31. A very sweet section of uh, this chapter, of course, in this section and this letter. More than one writer or screenwriter has used the device of a person's letters to their loved one being intercepted by an evil third party and thus never delivered. It always causes the person who receives no communication uh, to conclude that they are no longer loved. And then they sometimes look elsewhere for love, but they are never quite fulfilled. In our case, we have the love letter of Jesus to us in the form of the Bible. Reading and rereading it ought to assure us that he loves us with an everlasting and unconditional love. Still, there are things that try to intercept our appreciation of his love for us, and some of them are listed for us as we end this chapter. And so let's look at, uh, let's look at it together, starting in verse 31, where Paul says, what shall we say to these things? In other words, what conclusions can we draw? He's come this far in the book of Romans, uh, talked about many different things. He says, what, what, conclu- what can we conclude, especially here in chapters 6, 7, and 8, about living the Christian life? Uh, he says in verse 31, if or since God is for us, the gift of God's Son in saving us and the gift of God the Holy Spirit in dwelling us are enough for anyone to conclude that God is for us. Uh, God who did not spare his own son but gave him for us. Uh, the historical fact of the, the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is for us, for the human race. Uh, therefore, he says, who can be against us? Well, it's interesting, lots of people and creatures are against us. The devil and his demons are against us. Sinners are against us. Things are also against us. Things like the world and the flesh. <laughs> they want to intercept the understanding that Jesus loves us. And so he isn't saying who can be against us like there isn't anybody. He says there are some things against us, but you have to understand that they cannot interfere with or they cannot intercept the love letter that the Lord has written to us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up. It is the highest, the greatest proof of the Father's love for us that he sent Jesus to die delivered him up as a summary of all that the cruelty of man did to Jesus, especially in his final hours. Acts 2.23, I'll just read it to you. It says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you've crucified and put to death. And so Peter talking there in Acts chapter two, he establishes that it was the plan of God from before the foundation of the earth to send Jesus into the world. It thus greatly amplifies God's love for us, knowing ahead of time what it would cost him, uh, and yet he came for us anyway. Verse 32 goes on and says, for us all. He delivered him up for us all. Now the us all, I believe, is the whole human race, but especially those who believe. If you are a Christian, you can be assured that God loved and loves you personally and that he demonstrated it by delivering Jesus to die in your place as your substitute. 
he goes on to say, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Since God gave us freely and by grace the greatest thing, uh, salvation in Jesus Christ, then we can believe that he will freely give us all other things that he's promised. Now, these all things, you know, it's Christmas time and you start to get excited about that. Uh, I personally would like a Technovorm coffee maker, uh, but that is not the kind of all things that the Lord is talking about. These all things are determined by him according to what is best in conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. They are anything and everything needed for our spiritual welfare. In other words, his love, while unconditional, is still purposeful. Uh, God doesn't (laughs) spoil us uh, by giving us things that we don't need. Now, we all have things that we don't need, but I don't want to get into that because I would just feel bad for you. Uh, because I think everything I have is something I need. But anyway, you know, we get into that kind of thing. But, so we all have things that we don't need, uh, but, but God here, we're, we're being told that whatever you need for your spiritual growth to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ, which was some of the previous teaching we had in Romans 8, that he was going, we were foreordained to be predestined into the image of Jesus Christ. So, so whatever it is God needs to bring into your life to make you like Jesus, that's gonna be provided for you. And so <clears throat> there's always, I don't think there's ever been a time in my life uh, and just being honest with you, when I didn't think I needed something that I don't have, uh, whether it's a sp- spiritual thing or a material thing or whatever, uh, there, if I think about it hard enough and long enough, I can think, yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I need that. I really need that to, you know, Lord, to serve you uh, or whatever. Uh, and, and what Paul is telling us here is that everything that you need, you have right now. You, you know, it's at your disposal. Some of you Star Trek fans will appreciate this. There's a famous Star Trek episode where Captain Kirk has to fight the Gorn. How many of you remember that episode? It's fantastic. We should stop right now and watch it. If we were an emergent church, we would. But uh, anyway, I can't, I don't want to take up all of our time, but he has to fight this other, uh, it's a lizard-like creature who I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how the guy could pilot a starship because he moves like, you know, really slow and he's got lizard hands and everything. But anyway, and the idea was that one of the two of them was going to win and whoever won their, their race and their ship was going to be uh, spared and the others wiped out. And the, the Metrones who were behind all of this, who were super powerful beings, they kept saying, everything you need to win this battle is provided for you. And, uh, you know, Captain Kirk finally put it all together and he made a bazooka out of bamboo and phosphorus and stuff. And Spock was like, yes, yes, he gets it. And the doctor was, what does he get? You know, and it was, it's just a great Star Trek. And he blows the Gorn up, you know, but he doesn't kill him. And then he refuses to kill him, showing mercy. And the Metrons, who look strangely like Greeks, um, they, uh, you know, they say, oh, there's hope for the human race. And you say, yes, Captain Kirk. But anyway, everything that you need for spiritual growth, it's provided for you. It's just you just don't always recognize it because you're growing in ways that you don't want to grow or God is working in you in ways that maybe you don't want him to be working in. And so all things are, are provided for you. In verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, 
the verse again isn't saying no one will attack us. It's saying that their attack doesn't lessen God's love. This is the point tonight. Jesus loves you. God loves you with an unfathomable, unconditional love. And, and when you think about it, he says that, that when people bring a charge against you, it cannot lessen God's love for you. Now, on a human level, Quite honestly, sometimes, you know, maybe I have a friend or a person that I'm an acquaintance with and somebody can come and they can gossip about that person and they can say, hey, I saw so-and-so do this or he said this about you or this. And, and I can start to wonder about my relationship with that person. Is that person, are they false? Or did they, they told me that they really liked me and that we were BFF and all that kind of stuff, you know, but you start to worry. And so these accusations come, these charges come, and when we act, humanly, we can sometimes let them interfere with God's love for us. <clears throat> when the, I can't help in this verse where he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? I can't help but think of Job because his situation perfectly illustrates someone bringing a charge against God's elect. Satan goes to heaven. He's called into heaven to give an account of himself, and, and he brings charges against Job. He essentially, he says, Job only loves you because you've blessed him materially and given him a family and all, and if you take all of that away and take most of his health away, he will curse you to your face. Uh, and God says, yeah, that's not going to happen. Go ahead, do whatever you want to him up to that point. And the devil must think, hey, whoa, you know, it's my lucky day. Hit the jackpot and stuff. And he goes and he wipes out Job's family and his goods. And, you know, you find Job sitting in an ash heap with a potsherd scraping boils. And it's crazy. It was precisely on account of his love for Job that God permitted the devil to test him so severely. Now, if you're a Christian, you understand that. Before you're a Christian, you think, I don't know if I like that. In fact, I know I don't like that. That's some kind of crazy philosophical talk. That's worse than existentialism. God loves me so much that he allows me to suffer. Well, you have to have the, the big picture. But the, the thing with Job is that, that that was the very thing. The devil brought charges against him. And God says, well, who shall bring a charge against my elect? That will interfere with my love for him. No one. Uh, and, and so it's, it's fantastic. In verse 33, it says, it is God who justifies? The language scholars say that this phrase can be read as a question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Shall God who justifies? Read, uh, read it that way and you're reminded that God no longer looks upon you with any charges. If you are justified by him, any charges brought against you by anyone or anything else should never intercept his love. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, if you're Job, and you know, obviously he had a more limited revelation of God, but he finally comes to the understanding at the end that he's been justified by God and that he need not fear losing the love of God. Verse 34, he, uh, who is he who condemns? Again, there's plenty of people who will condemn you, but their condemnation should never be perceived as a lack of love by God. It is Christ who died. Again, this can be read as a question. Shall Christ who has died condemn them? The argument here is that as Christ died to save you and not to destroy you, he will never condemn you. His death for you is a security that he will not condemn you. 
There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so when, if people come to you and after they're done talking to you, you feel condemnation, you feel condemned, you feel like, you know, God is distant from you, that's not the Lord. Because he said, I, I, you know, look at the cross. There I died so that you would never be condemned again. Uh, and so this is a very strong statement of the love of Christ. Verse 34, and furthermore, he is also risen even at the right hand of God. <clears throat> Back to Job, Satan was in heaven. He was before God's throne accusing and condemning. Here we see Jesus is at the right hand of God loving on us. And so I'll take that any day. You know, I mean, I, if you only have part of the picture, you've got, you know, God seated on the throne. I, I, don't, I can't really, I, I try not to have a mental picture of that. You know, I don't know what God, you know, God is a spirit and I see in Revelation the throne and all that, but it's kind of freaky, you know, until we get there and have spiritual eyes. But God's on his throne and then there's the devil and he's just accusing you and accusing you and spitting out poison and vomit against you and it's just, you know, gene this and gene that and in private and this, he said this and he did this and he did that. And if that's all you see, you think, wow, I'm in trouble. You know, uh, because 99% of what the devil says is true about me. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not that the devil lies about you. He doesn't have to go far. He just tells the truth. He goes, hey, I know for a fact that Gene did this today. He had an opportunity to serve you and he didn't. He, he skipped his devotions. He did this. He did. All of us fail every, every day and so the devil's there accusing you but then you kind of look over to the right hand of the father and there's Jesus Christ with a big smile on his face just waiting for the devil to blowhard himself out and then he says, hey father, Gene belongs to me. He's my friend and we're working this out and the father says, oh, okay. Is that all you have to say? Devil, and so that's the idea. See, we, we a lot of people, you, uh, hopefully none of us, but you all know people who live with tremendous condemnation as Christians. They just walk around with their heads down, feeling like failures, and I'm not saying, you know, Paul earlier said, shall we sin that grace might abound, God forbid, he goes, but Jesus is for you, and when these things are against you, Jesus remains for you, and he loves you. The movies portray people who say they love a person, but when difficulties come, they abandon them. The person who truly loves steps up and takes the hit. Jesus stepped up for us, and now he intercedes for us. He took the hit for us, and he is there always. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The love of Christ is the love he has for you. It's not just that it is his nature to love and so he has to love you. You ever think that? I'm a human being, therefore God must love me. He wouldn't love me if it was just me. But that, then you don't understand the nature of God then. He would. His love was proven on the cross when he took your place. It's illustrated in many romantic metaphors in the Bible, is it not? Sometimes we talk about the love of God as if it's a... Um, almost a sterile kind of a, an attribute of God. He's, you know, omnipotent and omnipresent and he loves, uh, you know. And, and certainly there is that aspect to unconditional love, but God goes to great pains throughout the scripture to also describe not just human love as a romantic thing, but divine love, his love for you, he says, can be compared to a romance. It's like uh, the, the love of a man for a woman in a marriage, 
He compares his love for Israel as, as if he is their husband and they are his wife in the church. Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And uh, there's books and metaphors all over the place because God wants you to know that this is a, a powerful love. It's an emotive love. It's a, it's a feeling that God has as well as just his nature. It's illustrated that way. And so it's not just a duty that Jesus took upon himself. It is his delight. You know, sometimes there's nothing wrong with looking at the cross and seeing the, the legal aspect of it and God paying for the debt of sin and purchasing us out of slavery and all of those kinds of transactions. But there's also a love aspect, a very powerful romantic love aspect. And, and I think when we leave that out, we do despite to the character and nature of God because in moments when we doubt his love or we think, well, God loves me, but he only loves me judicially because it's his nature. No, God is passionately in love with you the way uh, a, a husband loves his wife, as it were. That's the closest thing that he can uh, compare it to. Now, the question assumes that there are forces which will make every effort to intercept the love of Christ. So we have the love letter. We can read it any time. It's not that somebody's intercepting the words themselves, but there are all kinds of things that come into your life to try and interfere with and intercept the fact of God's love. Since Jesus cannot change and his love cannot falter, these forces are directed against you to make you doubt his love. He says in verse 35, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Taken together, I start saying, yeah, those are some things that definitely interfere with my understanding that God loves me. Because in a weaker, kind of a shallower state that I'm normally in, I think, well, if you loved me, you wouldn't treat me like that. And I miss the big picture again where God is making me like Christ and showing me his love in a different way. But, so these are things that come into my life and they shake my understanding of the unshakable love of Christ. So tribulation, the word properly refers to pressure from without or affliction arising from external causes. Uh, it can just mean trials of any kind. Distress. Uh, means narrowness of place. These are situations where you cannot see a way out. And those are pretty common uh, as you walk with the Lord. You keep, uh, many times I thought, well, Lord, there's just no way out of this. There's, there's no, unless I do this. And you become like we talked about on Sunday, you become like Abraham. You think, oh, there's a way out, but it's not God's way. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of a, you know, a human effort way or whatever. So you're sometimes in distresses. Persecution. This is the specific trial or trials that come simply because you're a believer and take a stand for Jesus Christ. Famine, we haven't really experienced shortages on that level because we have lost everything for the sake of the gospel. And that's what we're talking about here. Some of you have been through hard times. Uh, some of you remember the gas crisis of the 80s when we had Jimmy Carter as president and you had to fight people for gasoline and, you know, it was crazy, you know. So there's been shortages and some of you have that kind of, it. but he's talking here about being impoverished for the sake of the gospel, having everything taken from you because you're a Christian. Peril is a general word referring to danger of any kind. If this is intended to be a progression uh, then you can see at once you've lost everything, then you're literally homeless, then you're in great peril. And then sword, as if the proceeding weren't bad enough, you could be martyred. And so Paul says, here's some things. 
Uh, but the point is that all these could occur, and yet they cannot in any way alter Jesus Christ's love for you. You may not feel the love when you're in a famine or a peril or being martyred, but his love for you is just as powerful as ever. And that's the, remember, that's our point tonight, is that these things come into the lives of Christians, sometimes more frequently in, the, in some places and in some lives than others. Some lives are characterized by them their entire life. Others have you know, meaningful trials from time to time. But when you start to wonder, does God really love me? The answer to that is what? Yeah, he does. And if anything, these things prove his love for you. Verse 36, that it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's Psalm 44, 22. God's saints in the past were thus mistreated. Do we conclude that God did not love them? Do we conclude some failure or fault in them was a reason for the Lord to turn away from loving them, thus separating his love from them? No, quite the opposite. When we see Job or Joseph or Abraham or David in some trouble or distress or persecution or famine or peril, we understand with hindsight and with insight that it was precisely on account of God's love that they were mistreated. When we see an Old Testament prophet killed by the sword, we rejoice that he was so loved by God. And that's what, that's the mentality. I mean, seriously, when you read the story of Joseph, and, and a couple of times when Joseph is like, never wavering in his faith, but he's wondering, you know, uh, why am I still in prison? What's going on? You're thinking, come on, Joe, hang in there. This is one of the greatest stories ever told. Turn the page, buddy. In a few minutes, you're going to find out that they were against you, but God was for you. And we know, yeah, yeah, go Joseph. And then it happens to you, and you think, oh, God is against me. Because we don't, we don't see the end of the story. Well, we do. Actually, we see the, the very end of the story when we're home with Jesus. But, uh, and so we look at these guys, and we think, Wow, David's living in caves, hallelujah. He's being chased by some crazed, demonized king. This is fantastic. Think of the lessons that he's learning. Thinking of the lessons we are learning from learning the lessons that he learned. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. This is gonna be rich. What's gonna happen? The next morning, you know he's gonna be there tickling lions. And then it, as an added bonus, Darius throws in the guys who had him thrown in. It's fantastic. And you and I were like, yes, this is great. And then a trial comes our way and it's like, oh, I need help right now. I just, God doesn't love me anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do. There's no way out. This is the end of my life. I might as well kill myself. And we're like, no, you just don't see the end of the story. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's fantastic. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. On the phrase more than conquerors, uh, Dr. McGee writes, how can a sheep for the slaughter be more than a conqueror? This is another wonderful paradox of the Christian faith. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? It means to have assistance from another who gets the victory for us, who never lets us be defeated. Daniel in the lion's den, he didn't have any crazy ninja moves. He, did, he wasn't the lion whisperer. His three friends thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. There are scientists who are trying to prove that in these types of furnaces, there are cold spots. 
because of drafting and stuff and that it, it would be, and you know what, I, I say yes, all right, I, you know what, I'm not, I'm a friend of science, so let's say they can prove that in a certain type of clay furnace that there's a spot where you could actually stand there and, and, and not be burned up. So, so God anticipated that, and so he lets you know that when they threw them into the furnace, it was so hot at the entrance that some of Nebuchadnezzar's guys burned up. And so there was no chance that, you know, they didn't get together and, and have their little strategy and say, you know, we just need to get to, you know, we need to get to the vortex in the middle of this furnace and we'll be all right. They didn't get in there and find the vortex and then have the heat get turned on. It says he turned it up seven times hotter than it had ever been. I mean, the thing was, it was, you know, it's going to blow, Captain, you know, kind of a thing. And, and his guys burned up, and they didn't even smell like smoke when they came out because Jesus was in there with them, the Bible says. Nebuchadnezzar looked in, and he said, there's a fourth guy. Who's that? He looks like the son of God. I mean, it's a mind blower, and we think, all right. And then we get into a fiery furnace and we're looking for the cold spot. Or we're thinking, I'm, that's it, I'm burned up, it's all over now. And so it's, it's pretty, this is all really precious stuff. And so McGee says that Jesus loves you so much, he fights your battles for you. He conquers your enemies for you. He does it, however, uh, with spiritual weapons, things like humility and patience and forgiveness. In other words, it may seem to you like you're being conquered, but only because you don't want the kind of help that Jesus offers. Tonight we have a little heart spark verse that talks about praying for those who mistreat you and persecute you and all of that. And, and you know, that's not the kind of victory that I like. That, those aren't the kind of movies I go see. You know, when you're watching some of these, you know, movies where people deserve justice, you don't want, you don't want them being forgiven. You want their heart cut out. And so then we apply that to our own life and you think, oh, so this is victory, my humility, my patience, my kindness, my sacrifice, turning the other cheek, giving my coat away, those kinds of things. And the Lord says, yeah, because you're becoming like me. And you know, I, secretly, we all want to be like Jesus, don't you? I mean, it was, it was the greatest life ever lived. Not, not just because God said so, but it just stepping back, there's no greater life than that. People in the world who, who don't know Christ and aren't Christians and aren't even religious, look at a person, if you ask them who's the, maybe the greatest person who ever lived, they might say somebody like Mother Teresa, right? Everybody loves Mother Teresa because of her heart and her sacrifice and all that. Well, Jesus, Son of God, come to earth, human flesh and all, giving up what he gave up, ministering the way he ministered, not to accolades like a Mother Teresa, but to the cross, it's the greatest life ever lived. It's Mother Teresa to the million time million degree, you know. And so, you know, if you ever find somebody who really is into Mother Teresa, say, hey, Jesus is the, is the person that you need to be looking for because he, he really did this stuff to a degree that no one ever can fathom because he was God and gave all that, put all that aside in order to be a man. And so it's fantastic. Paul says, through him who loved us. Notice the past tense, loved Jesus loves us still and we know he does because he loved us at Calvary and died for us. Through him is a reminder that we can do nothing without him but all things through him. The very trials themselves draw forth his presence and sustaining grace. Again, Paul's point was and is that these things which on the surface seem separators are really connectors. 
They connect us to the deepest understanding and experience of the love of Christ. I think that we do not produce tough Christians anymore. The slightest trial throws us. We immediately feel insecure in the love of Jesus Christ. And rather than settling in with our love letter for a long wait, we begin to seek love elsewhere. Some seek it in the material realm by turning or returning to old habits. We seek to fill the perceived void with the very things that left us empty in the first place. Others seek love in a more spiritual realm, but one in which the word of God isn't really the final authority. They look for the love of Christ through methods not authorized or soundly condemned by the Bible. These folks act as though they are not receiving any love letters. They're letting all these things, in a spiritual sense, intercept the plain words of the Bible. Maybe you've known somebody like this, or maybe you've been this way where, you, 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 in a sense, you feel like you're not receiving any of the love from the Lord. It's like, like you know, it, and, and you need to remember, it's still coming. Because none of these things can really, truly, spiritually interfere with it. And Paul says in verse 38, for I am persuaded... One version translates it, I am certain, not the slightest doubt in his mind. I'm persuaded that neither life nor death, he's going to give us a long list of things that, that we again think you know, separate God's love. Death is the most terrible and terrifying of enemies. He strikes all ages and at any time. Making death notifications for the past 15 years has given me a new appreciation for death's non-discrimination. Death cannot separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus for a believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death has no sting. It's even to be preferred in, in the sense that it ushers us into glory. Life seems an odd choice, but upon reflection, you see it's an insightful choice. Daily living can distract us in such a way that we fail to reflect upon the Lord's love. And then when trouble comes, we're off guard. Verse 38 goes on to say, neither angels nor principalities nor powers. These seem to refer to angelic beings that are arranged in various hierarchies. Uh, they cannot interfere with the Lord's love for us. Verse 38, nor things present nor things to come. Things present include calamities and catastrophes. Many terrible things happen. They happen to good people. They happen to God's people. Do they separate me from the love of Christ? Only if I let them. He loves me no less. In fact, his loving presence reassures me in them. One of the things that is, one of the greatest testimonies of the Christian life, you've all seen this, is the person who's going through some awful tragedy and has the peace of God which passes all understanding and you think, wow, that's amazing. Uh, it's, it's a great testimony. Things to come are worries about tomorrow. Worrying can't change them. And besides, God is working all things together for good. Height nor depth have been variously understood. It seems likely Paul was referring to prosperity and elevation in this life uh, versus poverty and contempt in this life. Wherever you're at on that scale, uh, Jesus loves you no less, nor any other created thing. And so this is everything else in God's creation. So Paul hits some of the key things and he says, yeah, there's really nothing that can s s uh, separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Spurgeon spoke of the confidence great men and women of God had in God's love in ages past. 
He said they did not speak of Christ's love as though it were a myth to be respected or a tradition to be reverenced. They viewed it as a blessed reality and they cast their whole confidence upon it, being persuaded that it would bear them up upon eagles' wings and carry them all their days, resting assured that it would be to them a foundation of rock against which the waves might beat and the winds blow, but their soul's habitation would stand securely if founded upon it. I came across this quote, the Bible is God's love letter to us, not a love letter conveyed in one systematic context, but one that comes through a diversity of times, places, people, experiences, and stories that make it so rich. Billy Graham is quoted as saying, the Bible is God's love letter to us, telling us not only that he loves us, but showing us what he has done that demonstrates his love. So as we transition now into our time of gift shop, is there something or someone intercepting you from receiving the love letter Jesus has written you? It ought to be dispelled after the reading of this final section of Romans 8. No one, nothing can interfere with the love of Christ for you. Only your thinking, only my thinking about it. Only my wondering as to God's love because of what I'm going through. When the Bible, the word of God says, whatever I'm going through, God is with me in it and it is by his design. And just like these Old Testament and New Testament characters, I, I will be able one day to look back at my life and see that I was thrown into the lion's den, I was thrown into the furnace, whatever it might be, I was sold into slavery, I was put into prison precisely so that God could show me his love, not to interfere with it. And so we need to get our mind on correctly, amen? Let's go into a time of prayer and as we do, uh, as the Lord would put something on your heart to share, as a word of prayer or maybe a prophecy from reading the scripture. Uh, If you have the gift of speaking with tongues, this is a meeting at which uh, we we will do that decently and in order. But uh, especially tonight, you know, because I had that little heart spark about being persecuted and mistreated. Maybe there's someone or some situation that's really just hammered you uh, and you need to pray for that person, not about that person. Uh, You know, I I mean, I don't want to bust anybody that's going through anything, but instead of praying that your boss would, you know, get fired, uh, maybe we need to pray that he would get saved. You know, that's the kind of thing. Or that you would love him with the love of Jesus Christ and, and see what God wants to do because he's provided all the weaponry you need. You think it's a bazooka, uh, but it's really his love. So let's pray about those things tonight.